Hello, and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I am the antagonist from Arsenic and Old Lace, probably. Yes! The two old ladies who are trying to very nicely get rid of their elderly neighbors and kill people off with poison. Wow, good job, Caitlin. That's terrifying. <laughs> I'm Cameron, and I feel like I'm a little bit of a Dennis Nedry in that anything I try to do villainous would probably immediately backfire in a hilariously karmic way. Hmm, I'm Kristen, and I didn't think this over very well. Probably some sort of sneaky sly side antagonist that, like, you don't really know is an antagonist until the last moment, and then you're shocked. I can't think of an example. You're a twist. I am a twist. I'm the twist antagonist. I am Sarah, and I think I would be the kind of antagonist who just kind of, like, sits in the back. No one actually knows that they're there, but I'm, like, manipulating things Ooh, from the sidelines. the puppet master. <laughs> now we know that Sarah is a manipulative puppet master. <laughs> it all makes sense isn't now. That, isn't that what all editors are? That's true. Oh, my god! Behind the scenes, it's so, yeah. A lot of Slytherins. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Slytherin, too. That's awesome. <laughs> So this week, we have special guest Sarah McCabe, who is an assistant editor at Simon Pulse. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, I'm Sarah McCabe. I work mostly with fantasy and sci-fi, uh, YA, and then also a little bit of middle grade, Simon Pulse. And I'm really excited to be here today. We're really excited to have you. Absolutely. So we're chatting about villains, just in case our very long introductions did not cue you into that. We're talking about villains and antagonists. I actually just listened to a Writing Excuses podcast that put villains, antagonists, and then obstacles all together, but don't worry, we're not approaching them in the same way. So if you listen to that episode, we're doing something different. So what do you guys feel like the difference between a villain and an antagonist is? I hadn't really thought about them as different things until you asked this question. Like, I, I had, but not, like, in great detail. So when I was thinking about it, I think the main difference is that an antagonist is something directly in contrast to the main character, and a villain generally has a bigger overarching plan that doesn't necessarily include the main character. So, like, the difference would be Draco Malfoy versus, like, Voldemort, where Draco and Harry are constantly butting heads, but it's over kind of small personal matters, whereas Lord Voldemort, lots of people are butting heads with him because he's evil, you know? I took a slightly different tact on it. Um, I'm not I'm not entirely sure how useful it is to distinguish between them, but if I had to, which is what I'm going to do, <laughs> I think as an antagonist is anything that gets in the way of the protagonist. So an antagonist could briefly be a, the rock that makes your bicycle flip over, or your antagonist could be... Sauron. I think a villain is a subset of antagonist in that, for me, the word villainy Im usually implies that there's some kind of a conflict between good and evil. So, like, the, ro the rock, a rock is usually not going to be a villain, could but be. I think Sauron could what be. What about the rock? Well, so I think... <laughs> <laughs> I would have watched that movie. <laughs> depending on how much personification you put into something, it could happen. For example, I just finished reading Hill House Returned, which the main villain of the book is the house, which normally a house is not an actor, but in this book it is. Hmm. So I would, I would definitely, in that instance, I would clarify, I would classify the house as a villain because it is active and it has very clear villainous intention. What about you, Sarah? Um, I think I agree that, you know, an antagonist is often not the villain, but the villain is almost always an antagonist. Uh, and when I'm evaluating submissions, I always tell agents that, like, I, I really need a villain to be sympathetic in some way for me to be interested. But given, you know, the parameters, if we divide them into two separate categories, I'd say I'm actually a little bit more interested in antagonists because, you know, there's not a lot of depth with villains like Sauron, but I could gush for hours about the brilliant subtleties of Zuko's characterization. Um, that's about 
Oh, Ryzen. When I was thinking about this, I came at it from a villains are irredeemable kind of standpoint. Really? Yeah. I don't know if that's, I mean, that's just me talking. But, I mean, there are plenty of antagonists that do kind of irredeemable things, too. But I feel like with antagonists, we kind of hope that maybe there's a chance that they'll change their minds. Maybe not, though. Because Snape, I would say, is an antagonist. But I sure don't mm. like him or really root for him very much. <laughs> well, that really makes me think. But, like, with Voldemort, there's that whole, like, try for some redemp- try for some sorrow, Tom, thing, right? So, well, But not by the time, like, not contemporary. Like, by the time we get to oh, okay. Voldemort, as Harry Potter it's sees true. him, he's like, he's not... He's off the deep end. He's an interesting villain, well, though. Oh, no, no. I, I'm just going to say, like, think about someone like Darth Vader, who mm. is, like, a villain villain all the way up until the very end when he, you know, flips. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that redeemed necessarily because he's, you know, mass murderer. But <laughs> I think I think getting into the question of, like, what is redeemable and what is not is a really interesting discussion. I think, well, yeah. How different would the Star Wars movies have been if Darth Vader did not die at the end? Like, what yeah. would that have looked like? I'm not you sure. I have a good antagonist for the most recent films. Hey. Kevin <laughs> hates the newest Star Wars movies. So, what makes a good antagonist, then, if we like antagonists more than, or find them more interesting than villains? For me, I think it came down to motivation and complexity, where, but I think that's going to be the bottom line for most characters, whether or not I like them and find them interesting. Because while I love rivalries between, like, two characters who just hate each other for no reason, I think it's a lot more interesting when they have competing motivations that don't necessarily have to do with each other, but just are at odds. I was thinking maybe of, like, Ambrose and Quoth in The Name of the Wind, where they genuinely just hate each other, but they also have real reasons for not getting along that are unrelated to the fact that Quoth is know-it-all and Ambrose is super rich, you know? See, I feel like Ambrose is irredeemable, too, so... <laughs> that, that gets <laughs> rid of my whole... He's not the villain, though, really right? Threshold for redeemable. I actually was thinking about this in the context of Red Rising, where we have... We have lots of antagonists. It's a world where lots of people die all the time, and there's lots and lots of violence, and it's fun it's if that's what, yeah, <laughs> that's what comes straight out it's, not, it's, it's so good, good everybody dies uh, but you have interesting competing uh, levels of sympathy i guess i never ever feel sympathetic with jackal who just kills people outright and is just awful and then you have cassius who you kind of identify with because his main rift with the main character involves like his brother being dead and i'm sorry spoilers there's just lots of reason <laughs> to identify with both sides of that rift and, and you want the, them to make up what's the r guy's name the R guy. Yeah, he's like the really delicate one where you're like, oh, they're going to oh, be best oh. friends forever, but then they're not. Who? It starts with an R. Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> I can't think of his name, but he's like another level of antagonist in there where... You... Oh, 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 his best friend. Yes. What is his name? I can't... Somebody Ru- look it up Rook, quick. Rip. Oh um, my gosh. Okay, keep talking. I'm looking it up. <laughs> anyway, but I, I feel like what we've kind of been talking about, though, the complexity and like the motivations are what make those characters really interesting. I think it's really easy to get to villain and have a really flat character because you don't know why they're doing what it is they're doing. I mean, in so many books, the the villain's purpose is to like take over the world. Take Sauron, for instance. Like, we want darkness to cover everything. We don't really know why, which 
I mean, Saren, as a villain, he doesn't really appear that much. There are lots of instances where we see his power interfering with things. I think you were talking about this in the outline. Yeah, I, I just brought it up that because it basically we're all we were, it felt like we were just kind of started bad mouthing Tolkien for having a really bad and uninteresting villain, and <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I felt the need to bring up that. Well, I think you're right that that Sauron by himself is not especially compelling, but you have to remember that this is the same book where you have characters like Boromir, yeah, and his father Denethor, and you know, and the film version of Faramir. And then at the very end, it's not it's not Sauron who most well screws it for everybody. It's it's Frodo. <laughs> We're at we are at the end. We're about the good guys are about to win, and the hero of the story almost ruins it for everybody. So um, yeah, that's true. That's really interesting. There's, there's so I think there's a lot of compelling stuff about villains and antagonists in Tolkien, and, but it's, you're just looking at the wrong place if you're only looking at Sauron. That's true. Um, I think in terms of complexity, I think for both villains and antagonists, um, good villains and antagonists expose a character's own biases. So for example, like in the Throne of Glass series, Lysandra is kind of an antagonist for Aelin in the beginning. Um, and Aelin is so dead set on hating Lysandra that it takes her a while to really realize that, you know, they actually have a lot in common and that they've been pitted against each other by a man who's honestly the real villain of the piece. <laughs> um, and then, of course, like, Snape again, um, who's a horrible person. Um, but Harry was, you know, so convinced that he was, like, genuinely evil. And he wasn't, even though he sucked. Um, but, you know, Harry was evil, so. <laughs> That's true. For the record, the character's name is Roke. Roke. <laughs> yeah, we were we were really close. I thing? did want to say too, oh, just something that like I'm an absolute sucker for is antagonists who eventually become friends with the protagonist. Zuko. Like, Zuko. <laughs> yes. I don't want to go on about that. That is like a whole other podcast. Um, but like War and Peace from Sky High, or like Lysandra and Manon from the Burn of Lost series, because I really love when characters are forced to kind of examine why someone is their antagonist, because they often find that they have a lot more in common than they think. So honestly, one of the best tropes. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. I love it too. One of the things I really like in antagonists and villains is when I'm actually afraid that they might win because they're so competent. So examples that come to mind would be like Moriarty from BBC's Sherlock, mm-hmm. or like Darth Vader from the closing scene of Rogue One, or Azula from Avatar, if we're going to go back to our Zuko thing. I think one of the reasons why Zuko works so well in that setting is that you have Azula kind of as a foil to his villainy, where it's like, oh, now this is what the actual scary psychotic is going to electrocute you to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Azula is so much more compelling than the Fire Lord, I think. I mean, the Fire Lord's scary, but yeah, Azula fair. is like... Manipulative? Yeah, she's a real person. I think. Yeah, we get, like, characterization to her, whereas the Fire Lord's just kind of this, you know, flat. You don't even see him until, like, the very last season. You never Mm -hmm. see his face. That's true. I I, I want, like, all my villains to almost win, because that makes it much more satisfying when uh, the actual protagonist beats them. Well, it makes the the heroes look that much better if what they've overcome is actually good. (laughs) Force Awakens. Stop! I I just feel like I can't talk about villains without bringing up Mayor Prentice from Chaos Walking, because he's (laughs) hands down my favorite villain, just because he's so manipulative, and you almost believe him, and he almost convinces the good guys that he's a good guy, and you know he's evil the whole time, but he's just so much smarter than they are that it's terrifying. And I think that's something that's really compelling, is... When your victim is super smart or super competent or super convincing, they just they need to be really good at... Villains always have people following them. I want to know why those people are following them. Mm, that's true. Well, and Mary Prentice is especially a good villain in his story because you have Todd who wants to... He Like, the whole point of his character is that he's good and he's uncorruptible mm-hmm. and he wants to believe in people. Yeah. And so he's a really good foil for... Todd. Well, yeah, because the mayor takes 
what Todd wants, like the expectations and is like, Oh, Todd, you can save me. And that's automatically going to draw the um, protagonist into the conflict more. Mm -hmm. I wanted to throw in some contemporary examples because we Mm. tend to talk about sci-fi and fantasy a lot. But you had one about... Yeah, so I just read Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda, and I think Martin was a really good example of an antagonist. He does some terrible things where he he blackmails the main character, he tells the whole school that the character's gay before the character's ready to come out. Um, Just a lot of bad stuff is going on. But there are also times in the book where Simon and Martin really get along, and Simon kind of stops and thinks about it and he says wow he's basically my friend i don't know why we're not friends and i think that's a really really interesting thing um where you can see that the antagonist and the protagonist can get along but that they still don't i just it was a really interesting relationship um yeah i i I guess in terms of a villain i think you don't see those very often in um contemporaries but i did want to bring up because i'm doing a rewatch right now Dan Scott from One Tree Hill, who is a perfect example of someone who is the antagonist to each of the specific characters on kind of a micro level. Um, but when you pull out, he's actually the overarching arching villain of the entire show. And he's, you know, just awful and, and absolutely evil. And so it can be done. I just don't think it's done very often. I think another really interesting antagonist is Haley Grant from The Hate You Give. She is like the representative of white privilege in the book which I thought was so interesting. You have um, Star, who is an African-American young girl who's attending a mostly white school and then sees her friend shot by a police officer. And even before this, she started getting interested in like the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't know if it's called that in the book, but it's essentially people beginning to talk about that, I guess. And Haley passive-aggressively distanced herself from that and then says racist things to her all the time. And so Angie Thomas, who wrote that book, did a really good job of showing an antagonist that represents people who don't see the reason that things do need to change. I thought that was really interesting. Um, another thing that we talked a little bit about, force of nature antagonists. Yeah, so I am a huge fan of the show The Hundred. Um, and I think force of nature antagonists are, are really, really tricky, and I don't usually like them. It's a big love the day after tomorrow, for the record. Um, but I think with, you know, the hundred, one of the main, or really like the main, um, issue in season four was that there is a nuclear meltdown that's going to make most of Earth unlivable. And I love that that actual nuclear meltdown was the least interesting thing about a season that I really enjoyed. And I enjoyed it because it was all about, you know, characters making these really intense moral choices. Um, because I love when I am forced to consider what I would do in these kinds of situations. So like, you know, if you only have enough room in a safe house for a hundred people, who do you choose? Um, if you can save five people today, but then a hundred people die tomorrow, like what is the, the more moral choice? Um, so those kinds of things about seeing how people react to the unpredictability of nature, um, says a lot about who they are. And that's what I want any antagonist to bring out in my main characters. I had a similar, similar thought about the movie Cloverfield, which we've had contentious discussions about in this room before <laughs> i still haven't seen it so no <laughs> contention from me. <laughs> but the first one i feel like pretty much is a force of nature almost you have a monster i don't want to spoil the movie for anyone but the monster actually doesn't play a really huge part in the movie it's about the main characters not even trying to overcome this force of nature villain thing that's happening it's just what it brings out in them because the monster arrives rob makes a decision that's completely different to what he was doing before he decides to go back and save this girl who he's been madly in love with for years when he like has just decided to like not have anything to do with her and move to japan 
but it's the monster that makes me make that decision. And the monster's there, and the monster's a big obstacle, and it's like this thing that's happening, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the story. Okay, <laughs> yes. Okay, I can ask this question. Go ahead. <laughs> so when it comes to villains, there's always a big, long monologue. And always. Okay, but... I, every time I get to that point, I quote the Incredibles part, where it's like, oh no, you got me monologuing, because I, really frequently, that's what happens. And so, while I personally enjoy monologues to a certain extent, there is also a point where it gets ridiculous. And so I guess the question is, how do you keep it from edging into melodrama or excessive monologuing when it comes to villains? If a villain has a plan and there's no one around to hear it, does the plan exist? <laughs> <laughs> Cameron. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, to, to me, to me, it feels like I'm not saying I don't enjoy a good monologuing villain. I'm a huge fan of The Incredibles. But, <laughs> They're making but, fun of it. Though. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but that doesn't. But the point being that it can work. My thought was just that I really enjoy monologuing as long as we don't get to the point where the heroes can escape or take down the villain because of the monologue, which happens mm. in quite a lot of stuff, surprisingly, where, like, the villain is talking and they seize their opportunity while the villain's not paying attention. And to me, I feel like that comes across as slightly lazy, and so I have a hard time buying it, because no matter how competent the villain was to that point, I suddenly think, oh my gosh, you're so incompetent. Like, mm -hmm. just kill them already, you know? I'm not saying you can't have villains who, who for whom gratification is a primary motivator. But I think the ones where that isn't the case can also be really interesting. So you should, well, there's like ways around it. So this is not like the best example, but Hunger Games comes to mind when, except until the very end, which was at the end of a trilogy, there's not a point where President Snow says, and here's the plan, and I'm going to monologue at you so you understand what's going on. You have, I think the way that series handles it is you have other characters who are ostensibly on the protagonist's side who are very smart and put pieces together as they come up so you don't have to have a massive monologue reveal. That's true. That's an interesting example, though, because with President Snow, I think his main goal is to maintain the status quo. Uh -huh. And so we already know what he wants. Well, so my point being is that in that setting, the author found a way to communicate to the reader why the villain is doing what they're doing without having a monologue about it. Or I was thinking of the Winner's Trilogy, because I always bring it up, but the Emperor is like this totally manipulative jerk who is really good at moving pieces people around, you know, and getting him to do what he wants, but his creepiness is subtle enough and straightforward enough at the same time that he never really has to speech about it. He just whispers creepy threats or, like, does something terrible to the main love interest. It's okay, but you get the point of what he's going for and why without him having to discuss it. I think if you're the kind of villain who likes to work in the background, there's a way that you could write it where... They are manipulating things, and then the main character kind of finds out from various people they've manipulated and, like, puts the plan together at the end. I, I can't think of an actual example right now, but I could see that working. But I'm, I still like monologue. <laughs> I like it like, all unfold before me, and then I can just, like, revel in the brilliance. So. <laughs> all right. Okay, so if we don't have anything else we want to add, yeah. let's move on to the second portion of our podcast. The um, submission that we looked over was from Susana de la Peña, and the submission is called Captured Night. So we want to do a quick review of how we critique, though it's going to be a little bit different because we have Sarah here this week. We've talked a whole lot about writing groups and how when you're in a writing group, giving prescriptive advice is usually not helpful. So that means that instead of telling people how to fix things, 
we tell people places that we see problems and then leave it up to them to do whatever it is that they're going to do in order to accomplish their goals, the promises that they want to make. But because we have an actual editor in here, Huh? <laughs> a few notes about how to fix things or, or suggestions. Yeah, as soon as you get to a place where you're working with an agent or an editor, you can bet you're going to get prescriptive advice. And because they're all like professional and awesome, you should probably listen to them. So, things we liked. What did you guys like about this mission? Well, immediately, I liked the first line. I was really interested in this idea of a stolen asylum cart. I want to know who stole it, where it was going. And I thought the contrast between... Like, oh, Emmeline's riding away in a scary stolen asylum cart with, like, oh, also falling leaves. I just thought it was a really nice, like, tonal promise. I also yeah. really like... such a like, attraction. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and it has to give extra bonus points for not only giving us the character name, but also whose perspective this is from also in the first sentence. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great promise, too. I just loved that it dragged me right in, that opening line. Other things that I like, there's some very beautiful imagery and language in this submission. I agree. I am immediately drawn in by, like, all of the questions that she poses. Um, like, what happened to her brother? And does her kidnapping have to do with her brother? And why does the kingdom blame her for her brother? Basically, everything about her brother. I'm very, very interested in knowing the answers to, so... Which is a really good thing to do in a first chapter. Definitely. Caitlin mentioned that she liked this, and I also was really interested by it. Um, there's this really cool inner dialogue with Emmeline where... Part of her is blaming herself for a bunch of stuff, and then she's responding to it by quoting from books. And I just thought that it was a really good like character moment where we could see what things Emmeline was afraid of, what she blamed herself for, to a certain extent anyway, and told us a lot about how she overcomes stuff like that. Because, I mean, now we know that she spends a lot of time in libraries and memorizes passages from books. So mm-hmm. it just accomplished a lot of stuff with one detail. I also felt like it was kind of relatable. It's a good way to make this character... I think a lot of people do that to themselves, where they're in a bad situation and they're like, how? Why did I do this to myself? I loved her inner dialogue, but I also liked that her external dialogue made her sound very much like a princess. Just the way she talked to her captors, you know, it was clear that this was a girl who is really used to being bad to Yeah. (laughs) I thought there was some cool iceberging, too, where mentions, like, a, a colorful illustration of a warrior goddess and her eight arms, and I was like... That's awesome. Wasn't what I was expecting, but I'll take it. There's some really good characterization of her captors that was just really quick and stuck with me. Um, we know that there's one really icky small guy who says mean stuff, and then there's this taller guy who seems slightly more conflicted about what's going on. But she didn't take a whole long time to tell us about it. It was just like one sentence. Yeah, she did do a great job of establishing who those people are right off the bat. Um, but I always distrust the nice ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You should do it with conviction. Otherwise, you're not worth my time. <laughs> but yeah, that was great. <laughs> Suddenly getting Vizini and Physic vibes. But um, <laughs> uh, I also, some of you guys also mentioned this. I like that she's in, she's in this asylum cart and there's nothing that she can obviously do, but she's still trying to find a way out. I like that she's not just... She hasn't succumbed to just passively just sitting there and watching. We get her inner thought process. Okay, I tried this, tried that. What all can I... There's got to be something I can do. I like that her her response to the situation is there has to be something I can do. Because it shows that for the rest of the book, she's going to actively make choices and not just let stuff happen to her. Which automatically makes her sympathetic. We like characters Mm -hmm. that do stuff. I overall... She's probably going to drown. Because it closes with with, she makes a snap decision and dives into a river even though she can't swim. Which, I don't know if that's 
a good decision per se, but I like that she made a decision. Uh, and overall, I just really like the premise. It's kind of cool to think about a story about a princess who got kidnapped, but we're not really sure if her kidnappers know she's a princess, but they might know. And it's like right up my alley, so. Okay, so let's move on to things that might need a second look. I think they're... The prose sometimes borders on purple, um, where there's just a lot of description in places where we don't need as much flowery description for it, and it kind of gets overwhelming at times. I remember there's one part where she's describing her thoughts as something to do with like parchment fluttering out of flame mm-hmm. above the candle, and I'm like, that is a beautiful metaphor, but it doesn't really help the scene at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I always say um, sensory is really great in small doses, but especially in a chapter like this, where there's so much that's taking place in Emily's head... Um, it can really slow the scene down. And so, you know, just putting in a lot more active language will help propel the plot forward and keep the readers interested. Especially combined with, so we get we get the really great start with the asylum cart, but then over the course of those 10 pages, we get not one but two passive flashbacks where we're remembering things that happened to us. She's telling us what happened and to she's, us. She's telling us what happened and not, not like that, just straight up actively reliving it. So it's... It, I think, I think I, if you're like really good with it, you could get away with maybe one short passive flashback in the first ten pages. But I think two is really pushing it. There's a part where like one of the guards slaps her, but she's inside the cart, which I assume is barred. And I was wondering how big the bars are. If he was able to get his hand in and slap her while they're still in there. So just clarity on small details like that. Right. So the character reflects a lot on what letter to be captured. Um, but I'd also like to see her focus a little bit more on what's going to happen, you know, on where she is going and um, where she's eventually or how she's eventually going to escape. Or alternately, you could do the character, you know, maybe she had been focusing on that a lot a couple of days ago. But since she's been in the wagon for so long, she's has all kind of like faded away. And now she's only left with that hateful voice in her head. But I just want to know that she did think about it at one point, because that's if you were kidnapped, I would assume that would be one of your first thoughts. So. Yeah, they keep talking about this master guy. I would have questions. A lot. <laughs> well, and at another point, the guards make, like, a comment where they're like, so you do have a voice. And I was like, wait, why hasn't Emmeline, like, tried screaming for help or asking them, like, talk, like, I don't know, trying to talk to them? I Well, and actually, she specifically mentions that, like, the tall guy who looks sympathetic She's seen him before, and like his demeanor has changed somehow, but we have never seen him before. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like she's been observing them and interacting with them. I also felt like there was a bit of inconsistency with her captors' motivations. Like, they keep saying, you know, our master doesn't care what condition you're in, so you better do what we say, because we don't don't have any problems beating you up. And then they proceed to risk letting her escape by having her bathe. Yeah, I did wonder about that. I'm like, I'm not sure how smart you guys are. (laughs) I mean, so it it occurred to me afterwards, I was thinking about it, well, maybe what's going on is the master does care what condition she's in, but but they don't want want her to know that, and then they're just following up on it poorly. But if if that's the case, then we need lampshade. I mean, I figure, I'm assuming her escape attempt isn't going to go well, so Mm -hmm. I don't think that they're really, like, letting her escape. Wouldn't it be um, awesome? I should not say this. No, say it anyway. Wouldn't it be awesome if she drowns right there and then? And, and that's the end of the book. And then it goes, then it goes to her brother's <laughs> perspective. Uh, that's what you're not supposed <laughs> to do in books. Can Your just like get away not away supposed to die in the first stuff. chapter. So actually, that was one of my thoughts that if she does manage to escape, because we don't see anymore, we can't really say when we're either or the other. If she does manage to escape, this is a lot of time to be spending on these characters and on her thoughts. I'm assuming that she doesn't. So. But it did make me wonder, because the end of the chapter is her trying to get away. But just in case 
does. Like, he does happen to escape, and the story goes in a very different direction than I'm expecting. I would love to just get, like, a little bit of information about why they kidnapped her in the first place and where she's supposed to be going. Yeah. yeah. There's definitely plenty of opportunity for them to show up later if she does escape now. That's true. They've definitely been given their very weighty introduction, and so I will remember them. Um, I did want to say, I think that it feels like we're getting a lot of details in this chapter, um, and I think they are relevant or they could be relevant but the specific details they're feeling a little bit unmoored from each other and for a first chapter i'd really recommend focusing on a central theme so like i think the brothers kidnapping seems like it's going to play a large role in this so it makes sense to focus on that but then kind of really tightening all the different details to kind of bring it into that central point um so i kind of did for example like what if she's always sneaking out because of this grief she has for her brother, like, what if that is the reason that she often goes out? And, like, in this specific time, it's on the anniversary of his kidnapping or his disappearance. So that would be kind of a way to keep tying it together. And then she clearly loves books. Um, so figuring out a way to tie in her love for books with her grief about her brother's disappearance or even, like, her guilt. Like, maybe she's reading so much because she's hiding away from the kingdom for whatever reason. But, yeah, just, like, keeping it all centered around that one theme can really help tighten the narrative. Any other thoughts, guys? I just want to know what happens next. (laughs) I really liked it overall. I mean, it was a really cool submission. I really liked the premise, and I would be excited to read more of that book. I guess then that brings us to the end of our show today. Thank you so much, Sarah, for coming on the show. Yeah, I just wanted to to say um, thank you guys so much for having me, and I also have to give a shameless plug for Last Star Burning, which is Caitlin's book with me um and it is about a girl who is forced to escape from the city that she lives in because she's been falsely accused of a crime and is going to be executed it goes in a very different direction than you expect so everyone should read it it's pretty good (laughs) Sarah. you're so nice please remember to check us out on twitter facebook as atlas service and instagram as lit service podcast we have lots of fun ways for you to meet other authors who are currently querying so you can network and commiserate. Querying sucks, guys. So yes, find other people. It really sucks. Find other people who are doing it too, and you can make each other miserable. It'll be fun. We are just starting all of this stuff, so be the one to start talking. Our forum as well, too, actually. You might be the first person who talks, but you never know who you're going to find. And on that forum, actually, on our website, if you would like to find other people who follow our Sandersonian critique rules about not giving... How's that for a word? Sandersonian. Sandersonian. Yeah. Uh, our critique rules where we don't give prescriptive advice. That's a really good place to look. Mm-hmm. I know that there's already a couple of people there who are looking for critique partners. So go check it out. Our website is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. <laughs> and, and if you want to look at today's submission, we all combined the notes that we had on it. So there are stuff that we didn't get to actually saying. So that's also going to be available on our website. We will also be accepting submissions for our episode in two weeks. So if you like, if you'd like a critique just from the, uh, friendly neighborhood <laughs> lit service crew, then you can submit to our email address. It's litservicepodcast at gmail.com and you can head over to our website to check out our submission guidelines. Um, and then tune in, in in two weeks to find out who our guests will be for March. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a star rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. It helps others to find the show. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs>